Passcast, the podcast from the Portable Antiquities Scheme. Hello and welcome back to Passcast, the podcast for the Portable Antiquities Scheme. And you've probably noticed that we've been um, off the airwaves for a, a couple of weeks now for a little mid-season break, a half-term break. Um, but while we had a, a break from podcasting, we've still been incredibly busy and, of course, welcoming back finders and taking in finds and returning some finds as well. It's been just so good to see familiar and new faces. And we've seen a lot of faces and as well as seeing um, objects we've not encountered before. Um, recent highlights for me, I guess I was really happy to take in a gorgeous Roman coin from the village where I live. So that was um, that was really nice to record something close to home. How about any any recent highlights for you, Ben? Well, some lovely things have come in that, you know, those things I can't talk about, but I was showing you before we started recording. But I, I, those will have to wait for another episode. But what was really nice was that um, I got and I put this on Twitter, but I, uh, a finder, I was returning a, a hanging bowl, Saxon hanging bowl to a finder. And we're going to hopefully might, we might talk about that in a future episode. But he uh, he sort of said he found this lovely Roman key and he just he just said, oh, oh you can have it if you want you can use it for your handling collection collection and show the the children and and I was like are you sure are you sure he said yeah yeah so he gave me a really beautiful Roman key that we've got to record yet but then when it's recorded it'll go into our handling collection and another finder which was really nice um who's been listening to our uh, podcast and said oh you really like these love tokens don't you I've got one for you and so he's gifted a a a, a yeah, uh, it's a Scottish bauby, as they call them. Um, it's you know bent into the S shape, the love token, and he's gifted that for our handling collection as well. So yeah, that was really nice. Those were highlights. Oh, that's nice really people and heartwarming stuff. Heartwarming what stuff. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, thank really you very nice. much. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we've been rolling through on this series with our Shakespearean theme, and we're nearly at the end, but we've arrived at a bit of a sticky point. That kind of awkward middle-aged. Spread, you might say and um, maybe it's a good time to think about what Shakespeare leaves out as well so we talked loads about parenthood in our first episode on early childhood but um, it's quite interesting that the bard himself just skips straight from soldier to this next phase the justice there's just no time for doting dads here no, I mean, we could talk about sort of uh, Elizabethan ideals of masculinity but and, and that kind of thing but I don't think we're going to are we we'll move on from that and but here's the text for the justice uh, from uh, from the Shakespeare. Um, and then the justice in fair round belly with good cape on lined, with eyes severe and beard of formal cut, full of wise sores and modern instances. And so he plays his part. <laughs> I mean, um, middle-aged spread is getting a definite mention in there. It's kind of lockdown, weight gain, eat your heart out. Is I that why you had me read it? No, no, we're all body positivity on past cast. We don't, we don't, we we are not here to judge anyone's no, no decisions. No. Um, but yeah, Shakespeare certainly is, isn't he? Yeah. I think that um, there's a few little bits in there to translate. Good capon lined is a reference to fancy foodstuffs. So a capon is a castrated cockle. Can you imagine if that's your job? What do you do? I castrate cockles. Um, I wonder if it was well paid itself. in the Elizabethan period. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> What's the going rate for a cockerel castrate? That's like a, yeah, some a terrible tongue twister. Yeah, yeah <laughs> homework for us. Yeah. But um, chicken, just eating chicken itself was a treat during this period. It's not, we tend to think of it as kind of um, going out for cheeky Nando's or other chicken, chicken restaurants are available. But um, 
it's it's definitely not that kind of cheap protein during during that period. It's much more of a luxury food. And a specifically castrated male chicken raised only for meat is a real luxury um, that only people with money could access. Well, it could be a, a reference to taking bribes, of course. So our middle-aged hookster is happily lining his own pockets as well as his belly as part of his role. Uh, this could be a formal reference to the role of justice of the peace or a magistrate, which was a kind of a voluntary position, but reserved for people who had a, a little bit of status and they'd collect taxes, organise the repair of roads. We could do some of those now, I think. Uh, set wage levels and, of course, administer justice itself. So I guess plenty of opportunity to, to you know, take a bung or two there. Not that we are at all impugning the impeccable reputation, uh, reputations of these esteemable gentlemen. Um, I quite like the bit about the eyes and the beard. It reminds me of the portraits that you see of Elizabethan grandees, especially, I don't know if you know the one of Francis Walsingham, Sir Francis Walsingham, the spy master. They had a little exhibition of them um, at Montacute House, which is a national trust near here. And that one in particular, like his eyes just follow you around the room. <laughs> you don't want to mess with him. He looks like this kind of king of the spy network. Yeah. It's really intimidating. I'm going to have to look that up. I think I can bring a few. Uh, yeah, I think I know the one you're talking about, but they're kind of standing like a dandy as well, sort of with the belly out, don't they? And, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, possibly that one. Yeah, yeah. But um, I feel like we, we might be full of wise saws we, we do love a, a one-liner you may have noticed or maybe it's an oblique reference to elizabethan dad jokes I'd, I'd love a list of elizabethan dad jokes that'd be great or those bits of advice that just grate a little when they're handed out to you yeah i think it's i i don't know i wonder if that little modern instances thing has kind of perked my attention just rereading it i wonder yeah, it's that kind of little anecdotes or sort of yeah. speculations on the present state of affairs, all oh, the yeah. youth of today, all of those <laughs> kinds of things. Yeah. Um, but as you can kind of imagine, there were lots of different ways that we could have taken this episode. And we're going to head off in one particular direction when our brilliant guest joins us this week. As a, Of course, all our guests are fab, but um, this week we're really excited. We're going to be talking with Adam Daubney, who is a Portable Antiquities Scheme alumni, and he's now a researcher into the legal side of detecting and archaeology. And Adam's picked a great object, uh, of course, chosen from our question list, and we'll bring him in shortly. I'm just going to say pirates, you know, just to set the scene. <laughs> but we still, yeah. we still wanted to have a whack at the old database ourselves and see what kind of objects we could find there linked to, to law and order. Um, we've taught this series about one which could have been a really good example for this episode and went into great depth about it, and that's the token, the convict token, um, a couple of episodes back about the, the woman, Audrey, waiting for transportation. Um, we talked about that with Bridget Milmore. That would have been really good, but yeah. we'd kind of already done it. And I was really taken with a slightly <laughs> creepy set of toy handcuffs that are recorded as um, Liverpool, so LVPL, D988AE. And they mimic a type of handcuffs called Derby cuffs, which mm. apparently started being made in the 18th century and were still used in the 1960s. So a good example of if it's really? not broke, don't fix it. Um, yeah, apparently. And these ones are in copper alloy, though, rather than I think the, the grown up versions for Baddens would have been in iron. <laughs> it's kind of the, the idea of kids playing cops and robbers, even back 
back then, I guess. I suppose adopt, adapting objects into their play from a, a really early stage in the development of uh, formal policing. I did also just record a police button from the early 20th century, um, which was D Dev, D-E-V, double A five eight C nine because just because it was in really lovely condition and really nice and clear um you know it's a sort of modern object but it had that kind of social history thing going on yeah so. no we I've recorded quite a few um police buttons from constabulary buttons and things like and, and belt buckles possibly as well or something else from the police but I think they're nice objects to record yeah for social history reasons as long as they're in decent condition and they can be read good but th there are of course some less playful objects linked to law and order on the database um uh, there's actually an unpublished record that features a, a ball and chain but th there's also a fairly horrible little group of shackles and there's five recorded on the database and of those two um post-medieval ones and three that are actually roman examples. and those three roman records if you want to go and look them up are hamp h-a-m-p c45106 um, NMS 3924D6 and NMS 763D65. That was very nearly my childhood phone number. That's a bit weird. Um, <laughs> but the records, <laughs> the records for the two Norfolk ones are quite succinct. Um, but the Hampshire record is um, really extensive. And it's been somebody, the, the person who recorded it, who I know quite well, um, obviously worked really hard on it and it's really lovely. So it's a perfect fit for the podcast. Um, we did think about looking at images of um, uh, justice or justicia on coins or even the words which um, poor old Charles I, of course, tries to adopt on his coins as a motto, justicia thronum firma, justice keeps me on my throne. But um, mm. yeah, it didn't really yeah. work out for, well for him at no. all. I think the grim appeal of the Roman shackles just overwhelmed us in the end. Yeah, definitely. They're, they're really weird objects when you look at them, aren't they? I guess because you, well, obviously because you imbue them with your own views about crime and punishment and all that kind of thing. But um, yeah, I'll make sure to put the, the links to those in the, um, uh, in the, in the uh, description for the episode because that's a really, it's a really fantastic record that uh, yeah. you're worth reading if you can go to it. Um, I guess, yeah, we, we did feel a bit overwhelmed, and especially given the recent and fairly horrible research that came out of Cambridge University about a Roman cemetery, which seems to be attached to a farm um, run by the military, um, where a much higher number of burials appear to have been formally executed than, you, uh, than you'd ever expect to see anywhere else, really. Yeah, the article is open access in the journal Britannia, and the authors are Rob Wiseman, Benjamin Neal, and Francesca Mazzilli. And um, it's so worth a read. They have also done a short blog by the lead author that we'll link to in the show notes, but it's well worth reading both because it's just a meticulous excavation of a Roman cemetery in which it looks like, I think it's 17 individuals were potentially beheaded as part of judicial punishment. But um, spoiler alert, uh, the authors suggest that the relationship between this community and the nearby military bases made justice stricter there. So people who might have got away with certain minor crimes would instead suffer the, that kind of full force of uh, Roman law and justice there. And one of the nasty elements is that they, 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 they were certainly being restrained, often in kneeling postures when executed. So to go back to the, the PAS record and talking about how we can read things into it, you know these objects ourselves there's a lot of horrible ways to 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 bind someone but a shackle is a, is a really showy way to to go about it that would have been just right for formal ex executions that are meant to make an example of someone it's pretty depressing to think about isn't it we talk about conspicuous consumption a lot but um 
conspicuous decapitation is pretty mm, yeah pretty grim <laughs> here comes the record um a corroded iron fetter probably from a set of romana british shackles the object is of penangular form with recurving eyes at the terminals in profile the shackle is concave a median band of rectangular section is enclosed within retained in each eye is a loop one circular the other an elongated oval bent at an obtuse angle as such, the artefact is similar in form to the Bavay type as classified in Thompson and is therefore best classified as such. It is acknowledged that it's a variant of the Bavay type in that such shackles tend to have a triangular loop rather than a circular one. It's worth noting that the form of this object is similar to modern animal hobbles. That's a little <laughs> grim little aside in there. Yeah, um, however, the latter tend to have a flat tongue at one terminal as opposed to eyes at both ends. Given the presence of eyes at both ends of this object and its typological similarity to Bavay type shackles, the ancient identification is preferred. Such finds tend to be found in later Roman contexts. Interesting. The wide date range here allows for retention and longevity of use. And there's quite a lengthy notes bit here, so I'll do that as well. As Thompson notes, in use, the shackles were placed around the captive's ankles. The bent loops passed through their triangular counterparts and the protruding ends of the former then slipped over the padlock bar. There's your key. It was evidently <laughs> the Roman key. It was yeah. evidently a device intended to give greater security in that it prevented the forcing apart of shackle terminals. The Bavay type was widespread in Gaul and Britain with a predominantly rural distribution. Adam Gwilt, um, has informed of numerous British examples from Great Chesterford, Essex, Roxeter, to Shropshire, Chester, Cheshire, Ware, Hertfordshire, Hockwold, Norfolk, Silchester, Berkshire, Ho, Norfolk, and London. One from Caestor by Norwich, um, Roman Venta Isonorum, can be found illustrated in De La Bédouillère, 1989. It's considered plausible that some of the rural workforce would have been shackled. Pretty plausible, I'd say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's really, really quite horrendous, isn't it? You know, that, that the idea of these kind of, uh, these Roman farms with their, their sort of enslaved uh, workers and things but I think if you put that kind of statement together with the burials in Cambridgeshire you have a quite a depressing picture of Roman Britain or at least some parts of it for some people but I guess that's true of a lot of things really. Yeah it's reality isn't it you always have that yeah. awareness that not everything is good for yeah. everyone but I don't know in my mind I always like to have a sort of vision of Roman Britain as this really diverse place that people can live together and buy into Roman culture as much or as you know there's a minimum amount you have to buy in but beyond that you can kind of just yeah you can just live but there's an awful lot of oppression and injustice and brutality and yeah objects like this really bring that home. Yeah, they do. I guess that's the question here. Was it justice at all? Was this treatment merited by anybody? How can you work towards fairness and equality under the law? And that last one is still just something that's up for debate at the moment, I suppose, along with definitions of what's right and just and what what isn't. Yeah, I guess it's just something that's continually being being refreshed. We always say like, oh, you know, it's a di it's a different time, it's a different place, but is mm. there? We're getting into Kant now, you know, we're going through the philosophers. <laughs> is there like an external idea of justice that we can reach anyway i'm going to yeah. stop however we will not be putting our guests in handcuffs and we will not be asking him to define a single external idea of the good um, but we will be asking him to talk about uh, the legal side of the pas archaeological finds and detecting so hello adam what a hell of a hell of a segue for you to come in on <laughs> hi hello adam hi hello how are you yeah all good here in lincolnshire thank you so you're happy in a sort of a post-PAS existence, are you? You miss us at all? 
Yeah, I really miss skiing. Uh, I have loads of fond memories of PAS, and um, I don't feel like my time with PAS is done. Um, there's lots more in the future. But um, yeah, I'm sort of currently doing uh, freelance work, doing bits of research for universities and um, local authorities and doing um, freelance uh, commercial fines reports as well. So yeah, it's fun. It's, it's, it's opening my eyes to a different part of the archaeology world. I always say that PAS is like the Hotel California because you can check out anytime you like, but you can never leave. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, we need to get a, make sure we get a plug for your uh, website and, and business in there as well. Get that in the episode notes. You know, if anybody needs a fine specialist in the Lincolnshire area, yeah, <laughs> point them your way. Yeah, we don't have to be neutral like the BBC. We don't have to no, point no, out no. that other fine specialists no. are available. Just no, this one. Not. There's <laughs> only Adam. Adam is the best one available in that area of the country and other areas as well. You the only past cast approved fine yeah. um, specialist. Yeah. Endorsed. Yes. Yeah, endorsed. Yeah. <laughs> so you have picked some questions from our, uh, our horrible list as well haven't you and of course the, the first one we start with which gives a bit more context and helps explain why you are where you are is how on earth did well how on earth did you end up doing what you're doing what's your background well i started out as most people do as a digger and so after university um i spent a few months uh, well six months um digging and then, uh, but I was also volunteering um, at the local museum, which was then called the City and County Museum in Lincoln. And it's there I started to um, develop a, sort of a specialism in finds. And then, uh, as luck would have it, um, a job came up at the museum and I uh, started work as the assistant curator of archaeology there. And then PAS was born. And so I took up the role in Lincolnshire when it began and, um, and then spent sort of 16, 17 years with PAS and um, felt, you know, uh, two years ago that it was right to kind of explore a little bit more and kind of get some a different experience. And so I'm now freelancing and just kind of <laughs> going where the wind blows, really. <laughs> That's an amazing stint in the PAS. It's a serious yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it's been an amazing journey, really. I mean, to see um, a county, you know, to see the data for, for one county flourish, um, it's been, you know, a real privilege. But also to work with a whole host of different finders and landowners, and um, but also, you know, contribute something to the national scheme, which, you know, and I've said this before, I think I said, said it on Twitter when I uh, left the scheme, that, um, you know, the scheme has so much still to offer and, you know, really needs long-term secure funding because you know the data that it's bringing in is it's literally changing the landscape um so yeah i'm flying i'm still flying the pas flag yeah good good yeah yeah so, but but as well as sort of you know doing the pas obviously the pas stuff but you, you you took you have quite an interest in the kind of ethical uh minefield side of portable antiquities and well and, and archaeology generally i guess and you've published a little bit on that as well haven't you yeah so uh, what I've noticed is that in PAS, some people have kind of specialisms in, you know, they develop an interest in, you know, coins or uh, a particular period. And for me, I've always been drawn to um, the ethics of um, collecting portable antiquities and, and searching for portable antiquities. I find the whole thing fascinating, particularly in England, where, you know, you're allowed to keep most types of objects and, uh, and it raises loads and loads of questions um about you know how do we as the public engage with the past and 
um, you know, questions about ownership, questions about stewardship, um, questions about um, responsibilities in terms of reporting. So, um, and I've tried my best really to kind of put these thoughts down onto the paper um, and publish them while always kind of recognizing that actually my thoughts are always evolving as well. So what I published, you know, 10 years ago, I might not actually think that way anymore, but it, it hopefully helps to develop a conversation. I think that's part of the problem with publishing, isn't it? I look back at things I've written and um, I've been asked to do something related to the last book I wrote. And I'm thinking, I don't even know if I agree with what I wrote then. <laughs> that's how it should be, yeah. though, shouldn't it? You know, you, if, if you... You know, when you get sort of stuck in the mud and you, you know, if you still find your opinions haven't changed, you know, over the last <laughs> Maybe there's a problem. Years, there's a problem, I think, yeah. I think one of one of my, uh, I, I would say my favourites, you know, I'm not that big a fanboy, you know, but one of what I really, one That's of the papers I Adam Dobney hit parade. Andrew hit parade. <laughs> one, I, one I really enjoyed, um, um, well, that I thought was really interesting, actually, and raised a lot of interesting issues, is where you talk about floating culture. So hopefully you haven't changed your mind from three years ago when this, or four years ago, 2017. And uh, we were just talking before we started recording about that that term. And I'll just read a little bit from uh, from the abstracts. It kind of gives it a bit of context and perhaps you can explain what you mean by it. But you, you start by saying in England and Wales, there exists a corpus of unprovenanced and unrecorded antiquities, a corpus adrift from archaeological context and now ebbing and flowing across the antiquities market, which could be described as floating culture. So what do That's you mean good, by isn't that? It? Yeah, it's right. I love Fantastic. that. Look yeah, at that yeah. phrase. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, in my mind, I was sort of, I think I was sat at my desk one day and kind of just looking at all of these objects and just, you know, thinking what's going to happen to these objects? And then sort of, you know, being acutely aware that on uh, internet um, auction houses, there are just loads of artifacts which, um, you know, have lost their provenance along the way, either um, unintentionally or, you know, intentionally and um i think how do you conceptualize this material and i thought well you know if you look at like a i don't know a boy a boy kind of you know floating on the on the water and um it's a bit like that where you know objects they had a home at one point you know but they're adrift now and they're kind of bobbing along you know until somebody picks them up and it really raised lots of questions in my mind as you know what what do we do about those objects? You know, it's not it's not the object's fault that it's now lost its provenance. Um, so, you know, we shouldn't look at, you know, shouldn't look at this object with disgust. But the reality is you can't use it for a great deal of archaeological research because you don't know where it's come from. Um, so there's all these sorts of questions. Um, but in my mind, I'm also kind of thinking, well, how do we how do we make sure that um all of the objects that we're recording on PAS don't end up losing their provenance you know unintentionally how do we how do we make sure that um objects are um kind of preserved for the future you know we've got a lot of detectorists across the country and you know they've all they're all um getting older what happens to these collections when people die you know how do we it's make really sure that sadly topical because that's just happened to a lovely finder of mine who is a really delightful guy and out of the blue. So, um, mm. yeah, that's <laughs> that's kind of painfully topical question here in Devon this week. Yeah, and it, it's stuff that we need to be talking about, really, um, you know, with finders, you know, to say to them, have, do, do, you, do your family know the, the archaeological importance of your collections? Um, you know, 
we make sure that they don't just go in a skip or get you know taken down to a charity shop or something you know we need to make sure that we've got systems in place and that we're we're helping finders to go through that process I always say that to people I say I'm not I'm not being morbid but please write down what you want to happen and write down where everything is and please tell them to ask for help because um yeah I'm really pleased that this person's family have reached out let me know and you know, I'm here to help them as as much as I can in this situation do you think that 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 just very quickly before we move on but do you think that that kind of idea that floating culture or these floating objects that can be applied as well to to objects that haven't yet been recorded that are perhaps you know sat in a drawer they might the finder might know where they've come from but they've not yet kind of been contextualized if you like by you know PAS or put on the database yeah definitely I mean at, at its core um, I think I'd define floating culture as unrecorded objects yeah um, because once once you get the record that that starts to preserve information it doesn't capture yeah. everything you know obviously a digital record doesn't allow you to go and you know take an xrf scan of <laughs> you can't do that with a digital record um but it goes you know it mitigates some loss of knowledge it's um, like a little homing tag isn't it a little gps that will bring it back <laughs> Yeah, Stretch, I'm yeah. stretching metaphors now. It's interesting though, because there's always been objects a bit like this. When I was doing my PhD, there were loads of um, loads of Etruscan ceramics in the British Museum that just have said to be from QC, and that's it for provenance. So it's, there's loads of really interesting questions of how do we tackle these these objects that are already in collections that don't have a good provenance if if we're sort of interested in them archaeologically, and then stopping other objects potentially becoming floating just having that information to pin them down to something if we possibly can yeah i think that's the crucial thing is how do we stop um those objects you know becoming just part of this mass of material that is floating around because you know if you've got a i don't know a roman coin of constantine you know really common type um unless it's kind of you know in a little bag with its number on it if that becomes dislodged from it it's it's impossible to you know, pin it back to its original record. I've seen it in museums, you know, you've got a, you know, a stray flint scraper that kind of, you know, unmarked and... Dude, you know. That's the stuff I find these in Officer Nightmares. Yeah, yeah. And it's really difficult to, you know, pin it back to its accession number. Um, you know, if the session register just says, you know, flint scraper, it's like... So, you know, there are all these problems and, and because people are finding more and more and more and more stuff, it's becoming more and more of an issue and will become more of an issue in probably 10, 15 years time when you know more collections become kind of ownerless. And in amongst all of that and all of this wonderful experience and sort of deep thinking and meaningful theoretization, I can't even say it, you know what I mean, <laughs> um, theoretical thinking about um, portable antiquities. What is your, would you, what would you say was your most controversial opinion? Oh, yeah. Um, I would say that it's it's okay to like treasure. <laughs> so, so that's such a contrast it, from our last controversial opinion, which was I hate gold. So yeah, this well, is completely good. the really way. Juxtaposition. Yeah, yeah. So I, I just think that we're very polite as archaeologists. You know, we've got into this phase where it's like, oh yes, you know, let's talk to the press. We must say that actually, you know, yes, this wonderful hoard of gold is 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 very interesting, but actually. For me, you know, a scruffy bit of 
pottery um, is, you know, that that's the real treasure. That's the stuff that we really like. When actually, you know, let's call a spade a spade. It is nice to um, record wonderful objects and to see these stunning discoveries. Now, I'm not saying that a scruffy bit of pottery can't be treasured. Of course it can. It can often tell us more. But the reality is, you know, I, when you go to a museum, you like to look at a nice thing. And I just think, actually, it's OK to say that you like both. You know, you like scruffy bits of pottery, but you like treasure as well. <laughs> I wonder how much that's kind of an instinctive response as well. Um, like, you can't control that feeling, can you? That sort of wow when somebody opens you know, their finds bag and they're like, oh, do you think this is? And you just go, oh, my God. God, yes, it is. Yeah. You know, whatever, whatever it might be, but there's that kind of sense of wonder. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I think we shouldn't sort of dumb down um, or dampen our natural passion for objects. You know, I think that's that's healthy and that's okay as long as you know we don't um, kind of overemphasize it at the stake of everything else. As long as you remember that every grossy green Roman coin is loved by somebody. Yeah, and usually it's loved by Sam. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Very so few what, others. But... Andrew, <laughs> Andrew also loves him. We could just garble a bit of, you know, Doctor Strange love, but essentially what he's saying is how you, you know, how you learn to stop worrying and love treasure, I think, is what he's saying, isn't it? Yeah, it is, yeah. Love all archaeology. Love yeah. all archaeology. Equally, but we need to recognise like this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but there are some objects which capture the public's imagination more. And, you know, yeah. I don't think that's a product of the press. I think it's just a natural, man, this is a beautiful, artistic, wonderful object. Yeah. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. But um, I think at university we have it so beaten out of us, don't we? Like, don't make value judgments. You fight against being ethnocentric at all times. And it's just like, oh, but it's really shiny yeah, and I like true. it. Yeah, it's true. I like shiny things, but show me a bit of enamel and, you know, work and I'm happy. <laughs> the magpie enamel. Yeah, yeah. And, and this is coming from the commercial world now where 90% of what I see is just broken, rusty nails. Yeah. And yeah. I sit there thinking, somebody please show me a Roman coin, even if it's grotty. <laughs> yeah, anything. Let yeah. me see the face of Constantine. Yeah. I guess <laughs> that's all in perspective, isn't it? There's not that kind of, oh, I open my emails and all of a sudden there's a beautiful medieval sapphire ring. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, it doesn't happen in the commercial world. No. It's like, it's just nails. Yeah, I spent years in the commercial world, never found anything like that. And uh, so you've also chosen another kind of controversial one, kind of, your funniest moment or a funny moment that you can recall from your career. Yeah, it involves a story from very early on in PAS. Um, I think probably in the first first year of it, so back in 2003. And golden age. Yeah, it was. It was the glory days. There was myself, um, a very young Dan Pett, <laughs> and um, there was another FLO who is now um, a PhD and, uh, in Roman um, archaeology, very lovely chap who I won't name because I don't want to embarrass him. Um, but very I'm just Googling now. I'm just Googling now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but we, we were down at the British Museum. It was a two day training course. It was back to back. And Dan very kindly let us stay over at his house. And anyway, the first day, I can't remember what we were learning. It might have been Roman coins. It was really good. And we went out for a few drinks in the evening. And Dan and I, you know, were very sensible and, you know, had uh, two pints and left it there. And this other chap um, decided to really go for it. And uh, he had uh, a few too many. And anyway, the next morning, 
The next morning was an entire day of lithics training in one of the stuffiest rooms in the basement of the British Museum with no airflow or ventilation or mm. natural outdoor light. And you could just suffered <laughs> the whole day. It became this um, very famous story within the sort of class of 2003. <laughs> this person's It's been hangover. awful for you because he must have, like the, the booze fumes coming off of him in that space can't have been yeah yeah i can't answer i blocked it out but it, you know <laughs> to have to sit through an entire days of a day of lithics training you know even when you're sober is quite a, a feat yeah. we, we we have covered in previous episodes about my feelings about uh, lithics and i think we're kind of on the same page there really i mean you know i understand i guess you. i was really lucky because i just had um my boss's lovely husband just did some napping and then we all played with it and then they helped me do this enormous batch of lithics i had had in so i guess it depends who's teaching you lithics doesn't it if it's kirsty and mike then it's you know might be quite nice i've had all my lithics strategies been through uh, kevin kevin leahy and it's great it's really good really informative but i think i've done it three times now and i'm still useless when it comes to identifying <laughs> stuff so you know I well i mean the reality is it, it's either late it's like late late neolithic or bronze age or early like, bronze well, age yeah yeah just covers it that's what i say to everybody yes yeah, late neolithic early bronze age yeah unless it's very small and then it's mesolithic that's it that's all yeah. you need to know yeah, yeah or very big and it could be just a, you know a rubbishy bit of late bronze age yeah exactly yeah, yeah. <laughs> i mean really it's just yeah i mean prehistory is built around a load of you know, flints that we don't know what date they are, really. Yeah. Controversial <laughs> comment. You're not going to get any hey, kind of argument from me say, on that. Yeah, I get yeah. prickly on behalf of all the prehistorians out there, but then... Yeah. However, that, that, does, that does raise a point about... Um, so my, my PhD thesis, which was on um, involved a lot of PAS data, um, I sort of approached the elephant in the room, which is um, <laughs> uh, temporal certainty. <laughs> So a, a very raw element is, you know, you, let's get a fieldwalked collection of flints, which are late Neolithic to early Bronze Age. As all and, of them are, yeah. As all of them are. And you look at that assemblage and think, okay, we can construct all sorts of wonderful things. But the elephant in the room is that actually these could represent flints deposited by generations who did not know one another at all. And the only thing that connects them is place. And it, that's when you start to get this, and, and you can apply that um, temporal uncertainty to a, a ditch that has, I don't know, a, a coin, a radiate um, at the bottom and um, a numus at the top. And, you, and we look at it and think, oh, that's great. That's a late Roman settlement. And you think, well, these are complete, could be completely unconnected communities, unconnected people just sharing the same landscape. Yeah. And it's a real challenge. And when you, when you really start to question people's interpretations, a lot of them um, uh, kind of overlook this issue of temporal fuzziness. Mm. And for your object, um, I think you've been true to your controversial opinion and you've gone with something really super shiny. Why did you introduce this glorious little hoard? Because um, hoard it is. Do you want to tell us a bit more about it? Yeah, so my favorite, um, discovery of all time um, in PAS it has to be this hoard of gold Spanish American doubloons. Now the latest coin in the hoard I think was 1802 
So it's a really late one. And it's interesting from a number of points of views. The first is the legal side of it in that um, it actually is, uh, it fell under the law of treasure trove rather than treasure. So we had to put it through um, uh, in that sense, uh, which is very rare to exercise that part of the law. But the other aspect is that it's so late, you know, 1802, 1803, it went in the ground. And when it when founders brought them in, and these are massive, really heavy gold coins. Um, I remember in the back of my head hearing about a hoard of Spanish gold in Lincolnshire. And um, I went off to the HER, the Historic Environment Record, and did some research and discovered the hoard of coins that was um, that I remembered. And to my amazement, it was in the same field that these other coins had come from. And wow. what had happened is that in 1820, uh, so 1924, there was a young lad who was working the field and he discovered um, some gold coins. So he ran and got his dad and they did a bit more digging around, recovered, I can't remember offhand how many coins it was, about 12 or 13 I think it says, coins. did it say 18 in the record? No. 18 coins. And um, obviously, they didn't have a metal detector, so they missed some, which these detectorists discovered, um, you know, in 2000 and whatever it was. And um, all of this uh, story about the young lad and his dad in the 20s was reported on in the local newspapers because it was alleged by the landowner that the, uh, the son and his dad were withholding some of the coins. Because what they did, like a lot of detectorists, is they, they have a brilliant discovery and they tell people because it's an amazing event. And the newspaper tells us that this son and his dad went to the local pub, took some of the coins and um, discussed them. Uh, one coin went off to an antiques uh, dealer. So they sold one and they, uh, another batch they hid uh, in a tin under an apple tree. And the coroner um, got involved, as did a local investigator, and it all came out. And it's all in print. It's all in the local newspapers. So this is an amazing story. The landowner, the current landowner, still has deeds to all of the properties. So we tried to you know, figure out who owned the land at the time. But unfortunately, it just doesn't give us enough detail as to, to know who owned that actual part of the field. So we don't know why these coins went in the ground and wow. uh, but it's an amazing story and there's still you know still lots more to come I think so I'll just uh, read a little bit from that record um, of the record reference which we should give out for listeners is LIN LIN dash 55 BFE7 and the description states there are eight Spanish American gold eight escudos of Charles IV of Spain discovered on the 11th of April 2010 and the 25th of April 2010 and the 25th of November 2011 and the 27th of November 2011. The coins discovered on the 11th of April and the 25th of April were assigned to the treasure reference number 2010-T271 and the two coins discovered discovered later on were given the different treasure reference number of 2011-T868. Uh, and as as Adam's already said, these eight coins were discovered in the same area in which a hoard of 18 gold eight escudos were found uh, on the 20th of June 1928. And the hoard was declared treasure trove by the Lincoln South District Coroner in September 1928. And five coins were acquired by the British Museum. 
It goes on to say, in the record, the coins were deposited during the time of the revolutionary and Napoleonic wars when gold was being carefully hoarded in England. And I'm going to come back to that, Adam. Um, but coin hoards are relatively rare after the time of the English Civil War, but the decades of the 1790s and 1800s are an exception, especially with regard to gold. Um, there are a significant number of such gold hoards on this scale from between 1794 to 1804, and, oh sorry, of from 8 to 57 gold coins, Spanish-American gold of this period was made to a standard of 88% fine gold. At the time of deposit, the value of the two groups of Lincoln coins, now numbering 24, would have equated to several thousand pounds in terms of modern-day purchasing power. So yes, I'm just going to come back to that, uh, Adam, if I may. So w why do we think that, um, that, that, that hoarding suddenly became popular again? And, uh, you know, uh, these coin, ho coin hoards were being deposited in the sort of late 18th and, and early 19th century. Well, I mean, the, the common explanation is that when you get a time of social stress, you know, people or social uncertainty, people put things in the ground. But this is the only hoard of Spanish-American doubloons in the country. So there's something, wow. you know, how did this person have access? Now, one of the names which came up on the deeds was... Um, chap called Sir Robert Hobart, who um, was the sheriff of Lincoln, um, but also was the Secretary of State for War in the colonies. You think, well, <laughs> was he? <laughs> what was he up to? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it yeah. was, uh, but and he fell off his horse and died in London, I think, um, in the early 1800s. Seating so okay, so you've got motive, you've got <laughs> connection. <laughs> but I'm thinking line of duty here. What, what, line just... of duty. Yeah. Thinking, what, what, are, what are the what are the key, key <laughs> thresholds that you need to <laughs> but um but it might not be him at all it might be somebody no. completely different we just don't know fascinating what an amazing mystery thank you so much for coming on the podcast adam i think i think um, i think we say this to all i guess but it's always true is that we could talk all day about um ethical issues and doubloons but um yeah i will just say thanks very much and Maybe we'll have to get you back another day and we can really get into some of Definitely more to talk about another day. I think you'll, you'll have to come back. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, happy to, uh, to do that. No, thanks so much. It's so lovely to see PAS family again. And, uh, <laughs> hope to see you all in person again soon. Yeah, likewise. Yeah, maybe likewise. we can all be hung over doing lithic studies. Yeah, sounds <laughs> In an incredibly professional way. Well, maybe. <laughs> thanks very much, Adam. Thanks, Adam. Pleasure. You've been listening to Passcast, the podcast from the Portable Antiquities Scheme. To find out more about what we do, to explore our database of finds, or to get contact details for your local finds liaison officer, please go to www.finds.org.uk.